I don't know about you guys. I just I really love when our overseers uh, lead us in prayer up here. It stirs my heart, and uh, I greatly appreciate the men that God has appointed to lead us. <clears throat> Today, as we um, get back into Luke chapter 10, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the first portion of that chapter in the story of uh, the Lord sending out the 70 or the 72. Uh, the textual evidence is about the same either way. doesn't change the point of the story. As we were looking at that, we saw that the one who appointed us will never abandon us, that we can trust that no matter what it is that we are doing, as God has sent us, He has chosen us and given us a work to do for His kingdom, everything that we need, He takes care of. All of our provision, all of our protection, He aligns our priorities, everything is in Him. Today, as we look, we're going to kind of pan back and take a look at this particular chapter as a whole and see how these three different vignettes that Luke provides for us work together to tell us a particular truth. And as we go into this, I want to start by asking the rhetorical question, what is a Christian? We live in a world that has a lot of ideas about what Christianity is. What is a Christian? Specifically, what's, what's an evangelical Christian? And we've got all kinds of different ideas about that. We hear the term evangelical, and we, in 2019, immediately attach to that some sort of a political uh, meaning. That's not at all what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with that. When we're talking about what a Christian is, we're talking about an identity. A Christian, very specifically at its root, looking at that word Christian, it means a little Christ. Someone who is no longer themselves, but is now identified with Christ. We've been buried with Him, and baptism represents this for us. We've been buried with Him in His crucifixion. We have died to sin, we've died to self, as He died for us, as an atoning sacrifice. And we've been raised up in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit to a new life for the first time, don't miss that, for the first time when we are in Christ, we are able to please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. The fact of the matter is, until you are in Christ, nothing... No matter how good it is, no matter how humanitarian it is, no matter how philanthropic it is, no matter how moral or correct it is, it isn't ever pleasing to God. Because the only thing that matters is being in union with Him. Being in Christ is what makes us able for the first time to choose the right way. Not that we can't do the right things. We can always choose to do the right things. But we can't choose to do them for God in Him in a way that is pleasing to Him. We are bound in our will to sin. In Christ, we're able to make a choice. We're able to do something. But it isn't about doing, not just about doing. It's primarily about being. Christian isn't the things that we do, it is who we are. Therefore, that's what makes it different than a religion. It's not just a world religion 
where we have a set of beliefs that we adhere to and a list of things that we do or don't do. It is who we are. It is the identity of Christ, the person of Christ in us. We connect with the reality that is God revealed in Christ. And that has ramifications in our everyday life. So who we are drives then what we do. As we look at Luke chapter 10, that's really our core reality. We see a vignette that, uh, that shows three different portions of this, but it's really describing what Christians do. Our core reality is that those who belong to Christ are driven by the reality of Christ. Let that sink in for just a moment. Those who belong to Christ are driven, they're compelled, they're moved from within and without by the reality of Christ. In other words, once we know Him, that has some implications, some ramifications in our lives. Once we know Him, then there are certain things that we do, not because doing them makes us belong to Him, but because belonging to Him, we can't help it. We're driven to it. We're driven by the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So we're going to be working through Luke chapter 10. And at this time, I would invite you to turn there. Uh, If you don't already have a Bible of your own to use, you're going to want one. So we have uh, plenty out at the front door. Uh, If you need one, just raise your hand up and Mr. Gary will take care of you. Make sure you got one. Just put your hand up if you need a Bible because you want to hear what God says. You want to be able to see the Word of God for yourself. If you're using an electronic device, our Wi-Fi is uh, listed for you in your program on the back of it uh, with the uh, password as well. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read the entire chapter for you. And while I might uh, ordinarily have you stand out of reverence for God's Word, I'm not going to have you stand today as I read this. Uh, partly because I can't trust myself not to interrupt it. So uh, as we do this, I'll invite you to follow along. And we'll be looking at chapter 10 as a whole. Beginning with verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. Offer that greeting of peace. Express who you are in this. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So when it says don't greet anybody on the road, it's not saying be discourteous or don't be friendly. It's saying, look, don't be distracted. Don't get caught up in these things. Now, if you're like me, I I have this struggle. Social media kills me because of my ADHD. When I go to to post a prayer request uh, on our Facebook group, okay, as uh, some of you have asked me to do, I'll get on there to do it with my intent of just jumping in, 
putting it on there and getting out. 35 minutes later, I still haven't gotten it posted because I get distracted by all of these other posts on my way. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be distracted. You've got a job to do. Don't get caught up in the socializing aspect of it. You are here to be my ambassador, to represent me as we go. And when you're there, enjoy the hospitality, embrace it, express your gratitude, and part of that gratitude is receiving it. It is an ungrateful act not to receive hospitality. However, don't go looking for an upgrade. If you get a better opportunity, you get to stay with, with Zygers and they offer you some really good peanut butter and jelly and, and some nice dark coffee and that's good. But, but if you get a chance then to, to go to Cole's house and you're going to get some, some really good, really dark coffee and you're going to get some better food, they're going to serve you turkey and potatoes. Man, don't bail on the peanut butter and jelly. In gratitude, take what you've been offered. Stay there, do the job. Don't look for an upgrade. That said, you're all going to look to stay with Coles and not with me. But the reality of it is, there is a job to do. So he is telling them, don't look for upgrades, be grateful, receive the hospitality. Continuing uh, with verse 8. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So you go in, you declare the message. If you are welcomed, stay. Continue to give hope to that town. If you are unwelcomed, then let them know judgment is coming. You had the opportunity, see ya, and move on. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For the, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, on two condemned cities of old, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than, at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum? Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. He's casting these warnings out. It's kind of a sidebar as he's speaking to his disciples. Now he speaks uh, into the air, as it were, speaks these judgments against these towns. Not that they cannot repent, but they have not repented. And he's speaking to them saying, man, you had the opportunity. You've been able to see the kingdom of God coming. Prophets of old never got to see this. In Israel, in the Old Testament, with the law and the mouthpiece of God present, they didn't get to see what you got to see. Man, if they had seen it, even the wicked would have repented. And yet, here you are, comfortable in your religion, comfortable in yourself, continuing to do what you do. Even Capernaum, his headquarters, they received him like a rock star but they didn't receive him for who he is. The judgment is coming to those who reject Christ. Turning back to his disciples in verse 16, he says, Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This isn't in the civil law, but an expert in the ceremonial law, the law of Moses. This is a religious expert. Uh, so if you could imagine uh, the, a, a, a Catholic cardinal, someone who is here specifically to know the fine points of the law. And he's coming to Jesus with this. We know from what we read earlier in Luke that at this point, the leaders of the synagogue, the religious leaders of the time, have already decided Jesus has to go. They've already made up their minds about that. So when this guy asks this question, or when he brings this up, he's not asking with sincerity. He's asking to try and trap him. That's the purpose and we know that because in the previous chapters, we've already seen that they've made this decision. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, in a, in a, in a great application of the Socratic method, answers a question with a question. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And, interestingly, now this, Jesus does this in Matthew, but it's interesting to me that here the teacher in the law connects these two things, two separate commands connected as one. And, love your neighbor as yourself. They knew. The religious leaders knew the heart and soul of the law. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Because I don't want to get too deep into this, and it's not really one of the, the, the points as we're going through the rest of the, uh, of the message today, I don't want us to miss it, but I don't want to belabor it. The man wants to justify himself because he, as an expert in the law, already knows that anything short of perfection in keeping the law results in death, not life. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, implicitly he is saying, do this perfectly. Absolutely meeting God's standard in this, in the outer man and the inner man, do this perfectly and you'll live. The reason the expert in the law wanted to justify himself is because he knew, as we all intuitively already know, because God has put his, 
image in us and our conscience cries out, we are not God. Amen? We are not ever going to be able to perfectly live out every moment of our lives in perfect submission and compliance with the law of God, even if we just have those two commands. That's it. You don't need all the details of the law. The rest of the law is to show you how far short you fall of this. But those two commands, love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being, nothing at all, ever, at any point, taking priority or taking precedence over God. Is there anybody here who has gotten through the day like that? Where God is first and foremost in your mind and everything else a distant second. I don't think I've ever spent a day that way. Not a full day. I can't even, I can't even get there. And love your neighbor as yourself, where everything about your neighbor's well-being is more important than anything about your well-being. How are you doing with that one? How about the person who disagrees with you politically? Do you love them as much as you love yourself? Are you more concerned about their needs than your own? Or are you more concerned about who's right? Guys, nobody gets this. That's why he's saying this. Jesus, teaching with authority, brings conviction even to the man who is trying to trap him. He wanted to justify himself in verse 29, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, who do I have to meet this law with? And how can I get out of it? Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and uh, at that time he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Let me read that again so it sinks in. A priest, one who represents the people before God and God before the people, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, a Levite was a temple or tabernacle worker, a religious professional, somebody who is of the approved tribe to be able to do the work, not a priest necessarily, but priests had to come from this line, but they were there to do temple work, somebody who knew the law well. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, this is a guy from the absolute wrong side of the tracks for a Jewish, for a Jewish person. This is a half-breed. They were considered to be dogs. They would refer to them. That was the, the ethnic slur that was used. Dogs. Half-breeds. They're not the right kind of people. They're all going to hell. They don't know God. They're done. Don't speak to them. Don't look at them. Don't let them drink from the same drinking fountain as you. Don't let them hold positions of power. This is the wrong kind of person, according to the current social standards, or the, con the contemporary standards of the time. But Luke records for us in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That was the, the uh, accepted medicinal practice of the time. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now this guy, he should be, you know, he should be looking at this Jewish guy over here like, nope, not my crowd, I'm out. I've been treated like a dog by these people straight along, and I will not waste my time. Not only did he have compassion and go to him, but understand, this man clearly had some place he was going, right? Do you ever travel when you don't have a destination? He's going down the road because he's on his way somewhere. But he turns aside, treats the man's wounds, helps him, and then goes farther. It doesn't just do the minimum. He puts the guy on his own ride, and he takes him to an inn. Whatever the nearest roadside place was, he took him there, treated him, and set him up for further care. He went out of his way, inconvenienced himself, did it at his own expense. He sacrificed himself. He put aside the bigotry between them, all of the divisiveness, all of the hatred that had been going on for generation after generation, the hatred that was deep-seated in them. Put it aside with a forgiving, sacrificial, inconvenient, compassionate love. Jesus says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The man was looking for a specific category of person in a specific situation so that he could check off of his religious checklist that he has obeyed the command of God. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter who they are. It matters who you are. Your neighbor is not determined by their identity. It's determined by your identity. Do you belong to God or not? And if you're going to represent him, here's how you do it. Go and do likewise. Continuing in verse 38, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, I... I Maybe this is my imagination, but I hear a certain whininess in her voice, in my mind. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Jesus answered, you're worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. As we look at, at this passage, and we look at this particular scene with Mary and Martha, and we'll see them, they come up again later in the Scriptures. It's really easy for us to miss the point. Jesus isn't condemning Martha. 
He's not judging her, saying, Martha, you know, just chill out, knock it off. What's wrong with you? But he's pointing out to her that she's missing the purpose of the visit. She's missing the point of it with all of her doing. Now is the time for being, to just be in the presence of the guest of honor. It would be very easy for us to develop a, a whole understanding of hospitality from this passage, and I would encourage you to, to think that through. That's not the point of what we're going to be dealing with today. It is a worthwhile study as you consider Christian hospitality. But what we see today is that those who belong to Christ are driven by the reality of Christ. This is true in all three of these particular scenes that, that Luke records for us. If you will remember uh, from the very beginning of Luke, he is writing this for his friend Theophilus and also for the church with the express purpose of collecting things that he, it's sort of an investigative journalism. He has worked through these things, he has researched, he has studied to put together an orderly account, as he does also in the book of Acts, to give a foundation for our faith so that Theophilus and the rest of us can know for sure, with an absolute certainty, the things that we've been taught. He's gone through it himself, he's wrestled with it, and as he puts these three scenes together, remember these chapter breaks are added later, they're not part of the inspired scripture, but we put those in to make it easier to find stuff. There is an encapsulation here nonetheless of these three vignettes that tell one story together. Those who belong to Christ are driven by the reality of Christ. Last week when we were together, uh, I mentioned Warren Wiersbe's commentary, Be Compassionate, I think is the title of it, on the first portion of Luke. And when he looks at Luke chapter 10, he identifies three key roles about, uh, of what Christians do and who Christians are. And I think it's really important for us to get this because his identification of these helps us to see what it means to be driven by the reality of Christ. Those three are this. Luke 10 describes three roles of Christ followers. First, ambassador. As Jesus sends out the 72 or the 70, He is sending them as ambassadors to represent Him. Second, neighbor. And we see in that story of the Good Samaritan what it means to be a neighbor. And third, worshiper, as captured in the picture of Mary at the feet of Christ, listening to His teaching. Now, when we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to do some things. So we're going to walk through these things. We're not going to spend a ton of time in the details of this passage. And you know that kills me because I want to spend a lot of time digging into the details here. But if we get too mired down in the trees, then we miss the forest entirely. So we don't want to spend a lot of time breaking down the wiping the dust from your feet or... Uh, the, the curse on Corazon, uh, Corazon and Bethsaida, not the point. If you want to talk about those, I'd be happy to talk about them. But today, as we're looking at this, the story as a whole gives us this expression, how we can reflect this reality of who Christ is. When we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to first proclaim the reality of Christ's kingdom. 
It drives us to proclaim the reality of Christ's kingdom. We see what they're doing here as they are taking the reality of who Jesus is into these towns in the region. They're preparing the way. Jesus is going to be going there. And their message for the people is the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, when he is preaching, has been saying from the beginning, as we see throughout all of the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Now there is a double-edged sword to this message. The kingdom being near means two things. Let's start with the most important thing. and Maybe it's not. They're probably equal. But let's start with the most important thing for me to say right now. When the kingdom is near, that means judgment is coming. God has given you expectations and He's coming to settle accounts. And all of us face that judgment. All of us, as Paul says in Romans, fall short of the glory of God. And the payment for that, as God settles the accounts, is that anyone who does not perfectly, in every way, at every moment, without fail, without exception, live up to the perfect standard of God's glory, in perfect intimacy with Him, everyone starts out and remains condemned to eternal damnation, death, separation from God. That is bad news. That's a problem. I can't fix it. I can't buy my way out of it. I can't join the right church and get a pass. I can't, by being born in America, win the spiritual lottery so that suddenly now, because I grew up in this place in this time, I get a pass. Wasn't true for Israel, isn't true for us, can never be true for anybody. The bad news is the kingdom is near. The second part, the other side of the, of the coin, the other edge of the sword, is the good news. The kingdom is near. Salvation is being offered. God's mercy, God's grace is available to you if you will take it. Jesus is progressing toward Jerusalem. He has resolutely set His face for Jerusalem. In other words, at this phase of His ministry, He is moving toward the time consciously, with an awareness in himself that he's already stated to his disciples, he's moving toward Calvary, toward the time when he will lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. In other words, he will be the substitute, the theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. He is taking our place, paying our penalty, the full penalty for our sin, in himself. Salvation is being offered. So judgment is coming, but God offers you hope if you will embrace the Son. Or as it says in the Psalms, kiss the Son lest He be angry. These are your options. Embrace the Son or be condemned by not embracing the Son. There is nothing else. So the kingdom coming is good news and bad news. But if we don't get the bad news right, then we can't understand the good news Appropriately. But once we know the bad news and we know that Christ as a reality offers us the good news, how can we possibly keep silent about it? 
How can we, knowing what it means to fear God, how can we not tell everybody we know, everybody we care about, look, there's a better way, man. Not just to fix your behaviors, not to make your marriage right or to raise your kids better or to make more money or to live a more respectable life. Forget all that. When you die, all that goes away. What happens then? Are you building your life for a year, for 10 years, or for a millennia, or for endless, countless millennia? What will you do in the long term? How can we possibly know the truth and not tell the truth? Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're in Luke, you're going to go to the right. 2 Corinthians is one of the first letters when you get past the book of Acts. You'll see Romans. And then the Corinthian letters were taken. The second one in chapter 5. When you get to chapter 5, we're going to focus in on verse 14 but we're going to be reading from 11 to the end of the chapter. When we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to proclaim the reality of Christ's kingdom. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us as the as believers in Corinth. To take pride, excuse me, to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Note this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at others or even ourselves the way we used to because our minds have been set free by Christ. We don't regard anyone anymore from the same worldly point of view that we did before. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's love compels us. 
We want to, to represent Him in the world. We have this role that has been given to us to be His ambassadors. As a church, we are an embassy. We represent Him in the world. Every moment of every day, everything I do is a picture of Christ to those who don't know Him. It's also a picture of Christ to those who do know Him. We build one another up as we represent Him. We must never forget the mission. When we recognize that this is not just a religion, but the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, and He is in us, we have embraced Him as our Lord, our Master, the one who drives and directs us, who assigns us, who has appointed us as his ambassador, it changes everything about how we live, how we think. It's no longer about what can make me happy. I was watching a TV show recently. It's an older show. Some of you may be familiar with JAG. And this is from back in the 90s. There was a, an episode with a really lousy ambassador in Peru. Fictional, of course, but what made this person a lousy ambassador is that the ambassador was about self-promotion. The ambassador was about a life of ease, of luxury, of amassing wealth, of getting the approval of the president and anybody in high position. It's about making me look good. A good ambassador is not concerned with that. All of those things may come, they may happen, but the concern of the good ambassador is to rightly represent their home nation. We are here as aliens and strangers in this world. We are citizens of another land, and we are here to rightly represent the kingdom. That's our job. When we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us, drives us to proclaim the reality of Christ's kingdom. It also drives us to express the reality of Christ's compassion. When we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to express the reality of Christ's compassion. In other words, when Christ's love is in us, Christ's love comes out of us. Make sense? Take a look at 1 John. So we're not going to have you turn there right now, but sometime on your own, take a look at the, the entire letter of 1 John. It's pretty short. The way to have assurance of your salvation, the way that you can know that you belong to Christ, is because you are increasing and growing in love. And as you love others, you look more like the one who is love, Jesus, who laid his life down for us. It's really important for us to recognize this. If we're going to be His, then we need to look like Him. We need to walk in His steps, as Peter said. Peter was talking about suffering. If we're going to claim to be in Him, then we need to live like Jesus did. Otherwise, we're just putting on a jersey, but we're not on the team. We need to recognize that the heart of Christ was compassionate always, and express the reality of Christ's compassion. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're still in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, still going to the right, the letters get a little bit smaller here.
after you get past the Corinthian letters, you've got Galatians and Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. What a brilliant and powerful letter Ephesians is. We're going to pick up with the first couple of verses of chapter 5. Notice what he says to the church. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. In the previous edition, if you have an older NIV, I like the rendering better. It says, be imitators, therefore. Be imitators of God. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He goes on to talk about the moral marks of those who are imitating God, who are following his example, who are living like Christ, getting rid of all sexual immorality, getting rid of anything that looks like sin. Just run from it. It's not who you are anymore. If you want to be his, then you ought to be following his example. Walk the way of love, just as Christ did. How did Christ do that? He saw our need, and He gave Himself up for us. little note to husbands. Later in this chapter, as He talks about the role of, uh, of um, husband and wife in marriage, His call to the husband harkens back to this very verse. Serve your wife, love your wife, the way Christ loved the church. Well, he tells us how that is. Walk in the way of love. Lay yourself down. Jesus saw our need, and he loved us in such a way that what mattered to him in what would be the, you know, the flesh, the, the, the easy understanding that we all have of normally watching out for ourselves, his own comfort, his own desires, his own pleasures, that didn't matter anymore because his love, his compassion superseded that. We had a debt we couldn't pay, so he paid the debt that he didn't know. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait for us to deserve it. He didn't wait for us to be on the right side of the tracks. He didn't wait for us for any of that. Before you or I were even born, or could even do one thing right or wrong, Jesus already died for us. That's compassion. Do you love like that? I have to ask myself that. And when I look in the mirror, do I love like that? Am I willing to give up the things that matter to me? To sacrifice, not just for somebody that impresses me, but am I willing to sacrifice that for my enemy? For the person who has wronged me most in life? Am I willing to give up everything that I care about for that person? And if I don't, then I don't know the love of Christ. Not rightly, not fully. Christians don't reflect this perfectly. But we must reflect it increasingly. If Christ is in us, Christ comes out of us. If the love and compassion of Christ is in us, then the love and compassion of Christ comes out of us. I still have a corrupted filter, however. 
I still have a dirty filter. I have to continue as I increasingly fill myself with Him, as I increasingly learn and submit to the way of God, to the way of love, then I will increasingly demonstrate that with the way I treat others. When I rightly understand Him, when I understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it will always drive me to express the reality of Christ's compassion. Why are there so many people in the world, even people who attend church, who badmouth Christians because they're judgmental? I gotta tell you something. Christians aren't judgmental. Humans are judgmental. We're the only ones trying to work on it. Do Christians reflect him perfectly? You tell me. That's why people look at us and say, they don't look anything like what you're talking about here. But the better we reflect Him, as we increasingly become conformed to His image, transfer, transformed from glory unto glory, more and more into the likeness of the Son, the reality of who He is in us, coming out of us, transforms the people around us as they feel the compassion of Christ expressed. When you care more about the needs of others than you care about your own comfort and preference, people will not say, wow, what a hateful bigot. People will say, what is going on with them? I want some of that. Now understand, you can't be an effective ambassador if you're not expressing that compassion. If you're a jerk, who wants to hear your gospel? Nobody wants to hear about your Jesus while you're stabbing him in the back on a business deal. Nobody wants to hear you talk about the beauty of Christ with foul language coming out of your mouth. Nobody wants to hear about being of a different world when you look like this world. We can't do that. If He's in us, He comes out of us. But if we're trying to muster it up on our own, then it's not Christ. It's not Him in us. It's us in the flesh trying to do behavioral things. That's what religion does. It binds back our behaviors. It works psychologically to get us to do good things that benefit the society. That's not what we're about as Christ followers. We're about Him. And if we represent Him by letting the reality of Christ in us become the reality of Christ in our conduct, then it will have the effect of serving others, bringing mercy and justice to others, and it benefits society. I would love to go off right now on a whole thing about church history. You'll have to come to a Wednesday night group at some point. We'll talk about church history a little bit and develop that. Because the presence of the church, when the presence of the church looks like Jesus, has been the most positive force in world history. I'll defend that another time. When we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to, procl to proclaim the reality of Christ's kingdom, to express the reality of Christ's compassion. Thirdly, when we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to cherish the reality of Christ's presence. It drives us to cherish the reality of Christ's presence. I would like to put a little asterisk in here, a little caveat. 
while this is the third thing we see, this is the underlying foundation to all of it. If we don't get this, then the rest doesn't matter. So while it's third in order, it is of the utmost importance. It is first in priority. In fact, that's the very point that Jesus is making in this last vignette. We see the, the ambassadors being sent. We see the neighbor uh, caring and expressing the compassion of Christ. But when we get to Martha and Mary, there's a shift. There's a shift in tone, and there's a shift from the action of what is being done to the value and treasure of the presence of Christ. That's the heart of worship. We've turned it into a lot of things. We've turned worship into, uh, into a, a style of music in some of our minds, into a, a time we set aside on Sunday morning. And there are elements of it in all those things, but too often we've turned it into a, a feeling, a vibe, a performance, and we've missed that the heart of worship is to embrace Him, to cherish the reality of Christ's presence. It's a matter of valuing Christ above all. We saw at the end of Luke 9 where Jesus said, man, if, if you love your family, if you, you love your, your mother and your father, and you should. If you love your children, if you love your spouse more than you love me, you don't have any part of me. You're not worthy of me. Christ above all. Christ above all. Say that with me. Christ above all. This is the credo of the Christian heart. If we really know Him and we see the beauty of who He is, then we see Him as precious above all things. Some of you, as soon as I said precious, thought of Fellowship of the Ring, right? You're thinking of Gollum. That's exactly what I'm talking about. To, to where we see him as so precious that he becomes our obsession. And there is nothing else that matters. Nothing in this world that can ever satisfy. He is enough. More than enough. And everything else is a cheap imitation. And when we begin to see that, when the love of Christ, the love for Christ, keeps us awake keeps us focused on Him. Oh my gosh, He's so beautiful. He's so much better than anything I've been chasing after. I, I was so caught up in my job. And what good is it? I was so into sports and my reputation. What good does that do? Jesus is everything. And what I discovered the hard way, I'll share my story with you sometime in person. Many of you know it. What I discovered the hard way is that when I stopped chasing those things, it, it cost me. When I was chasing after the things of this world, when I was obsessed with football, and when I was so caught up in all of the things that would make me right to be the best, to excel, to be the best linguist in the Air Force, to be the best person I could be, I lost that stuff. And sometimes I would gain it and lose my soul. But what I learned along the way is when I let go of it, when I gave those things up and captured them to use as an ambassador of Christ 
proclaiming the reality of Christ's kingdom through those things, expressing the reality of Christ's compassion through those things, and cherishing Christ at all times above those things. He gave them back to me in a better form than I could have ever had them on my own when I stopped chasing and worshiping that. Everything is about Christ. I, I, I don't know that I could do, I, I could try and develop that, and I don't think I could do any better than just saying everything, literally everything, is about Christ. Let's turn to two more little passages real quick. We'll turn, um, Philippians, you might want to keep your finger here because Philippians is the next book past it, but we're going to turn past Philippians to 1 Peter, and then we'll come back to Philippians. 1 Peter is getting toward the back. You're almost to Revelation. The books get real skinny, so it's easy to miss them as you turn past it. You'll recognize Peter as the, the apostle who walked on water, the apostle who was so close to Jesus, and yet always seemed to have his foot in his mouth. Now, after the resurrection, after Christ has, has uh, ascended to heaven, Peter finds his pen. We're going to focus in on uh, verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 1. But I want to start at the beginning of the paragraph because I want you to be able to, to kind of feel where Peter's coming from. Remember our focus is verse 8. Starting in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Amen. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The one who appointed you will never abandon you. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, by the way, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's our theme verse. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. You trust and hope in Him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what happens when we cherish the presence of Christ. We become filled with an inexpressible joy. Look at the difference between Martha and Mary. Martha's doing good stuff, right? When you invite somebody over to your house, it makes sense that you ought to clean and you ought to prepare. But Jesus gets there. There's still stuff to do. Poor Martha, man. She's got stuff to do. And the guest is here. And she's stressing. Some of us get caught up in seeing all the things that we're not doing as Christ followers. 
man, I just, I, I blow it so bad here. I, I, I've struggled with this sin. I, I don't reach out enough. I don't share my faith enough. I, I don't live right enough. I don't look the part. How could people ever believe that Jesus is real and great when I don't have my life together? Say amen if you've ever felt that way. Mary is just as messed up as Martha. Maybe more so. Martha's the one who invited Jesus to come. Mary, she's along for the ride. And everything that could stress Martha ought logically to be stressing Mary. Why isn't she stressed? Because she's at the feet of the Master. Jesus, I just want more of you. I want to hear your words. I want to know you. I want to embrace you. She is cherishing the presence of the guest of honor. And all the rest of the stuff just doesn't matter. It still needs to be done, but it can be done later. She's so focused on who Jesus is, the reality of his presence, that nothing else matters to her. The antidote to the behavioral Christianity, the guilt, the fear, the religious kind of stuff. The antidote for that is to treasure Christ above all. When I get so focused on Him that all I can see is this absolutely priceless treasure, when He is so precious to me that He's like the air that I breathe, even more so. I need more of Him than I need of oxygen. i got to have Jesus. I suddenly don't have room in my thinking to worry about even my sin. And you know what happens then? As that sin becomes unimportant, I'm not ruled by it. I don't want it. Why would I want that? How, how was I ever even tempted by that? That's not even a factor. It's not an issue because I've got Jesus. And he's so precious. I cherish his presence above everything. What was I thinking back then? It's like I was a dead person. Oh yeah, because I was. And he gave me life. And when I embrace that life, when I focus on the presence of Christ... How can I be stressed by the rest of that? He saw me at my absolute worst and still at that moment in the most shameful time of my life, the lowest point when I was most rebelling against God, when I was most disappointed in myself, Jesus loved me more than anybody ever could. Forget about the rest of it. Forget about trying to live up to expectations. Just cling to the feet of Christ. The sin will take care of itself. Get focused in on Him. Turn back to Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. This is not written for you in, in your program. It's an oversight on my part. So you might want to jot down Philippians 3, verses 7, and 7 through 11, really. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. We're going to focus in on verse 8. That's our, our focus verse. That's the point here. If you're going to underline it, that, that's, that's the one. 
When we understand who Jesus is and embrace that reality, it drives us to cherish the reality of Christ's presence. Here's Paul's expression of that to the Philippian church. Paul is in prison as he's writing this, right? He's imprisoned for his faith. Things are not going exactly according to the human plan, what the flesh might want. But here's what he says. Verse 7, we're going to read through 11, focus in on 8. But whatever were gains to me, I, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me, let me read that again because I think that's the heart of the passage. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. <laughs> I've lost all things, but I, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not because I've done so many good things, because I'm such a perfect Christian. Not, not that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the, the power of His resurrection and the participation in His sufferings. Becoming like Him even in His death so that somehow attaining to the resurrection of life, to the resurrection from the dead. Paul, having seen everything, having been the worst, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. I don't think he's... Seeing that, he might, we might see that as hyperbole. I don't think Paul sees it that way. I think he's really wrestling at times with his own guilt as one who persecuted the church, even overseeing the, the execution of those who followed Christ. Even his best things. Man, that's trash. That's rubbish. That's dung. I don't need any of that. What I need is Jesus. What I need is to know Him. To, to have this surpassing worth, this un, unbelievable, incomparable value of knowing Jesus. To bathe in Him. To, to bask in the reality of who He is and to reflect that to everybody around me. That's the power of knowing Christ. Those who belong to Christ are driven by the reality of Christ. Isn't that what, exactly what we just heard from Paul in Philippians? Man, I'm driven by these things. I'm so consumed with the presence of Christ. <laughs> because that's all that matters. I, I want to show love to everybody. I want to pour out compassion to everybody because that's what Jesus did. Paul said that in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow the way of love just the way Jesus did in laying his life down for you. That's what I want to do for everybody. That's what all of us are called to. And because we know that reality, there's an urgency. Because we know what it means to fear God, to understand that hell is real, and we're all headed there apart from the grace of God in Christ. We need to proclaim the kingdom. We need to proclaim this not as a religious belief. Maybe you believe it, maybe you don't. 
That's what I believe. It might not be what you believe, but, you know, that's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. Because if you don't know this as reality, you will die in your sins, period. And if we don't get that, if we don't express that to the ones that we love, we don't know Him. We don't understand the reality that is Christ. When we do, we proclaim the reality of His kingdom. Why does all this stuff matter? It matters because Jesus said that the greatest command of all is to love God more than anything and to love others as yourself. Turn to the book of Matthew. We'll close with these two scriptures. Three, really, but I'm going to have you look up to. Matthew's back to the left of Luke. We're going to jump in at Matthew 22, a passage that's familiar with everybody for uh, familiar to everybody who's been at real life for a length of time. What you see here in verses 37 to 40 of Matthew chapter 22 is exactly why this matters. Verse 37, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. These are connected. We can't, just like that, uh, that teacher of the law understood when he was trying to trap Jesus, Jesus is saying the same thing. We can never separate these two things. Because we love the Lord with all our heart, the second is like it. We love our neighbors as ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Turn the page to the right until you get to chapter 28. In light of that as the greatest commandment, Jesus has, this is how we express it. This is the commission that he's given to us. This is what we're called to. Start with verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We've been talking about that in chapter 10. Therefore, in light of that authority, I'm telling you, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, bring them into the church. Identify them with the body. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It impacts everything about how we live, everything about what we do. I would encourage you as we close to memorize the verse that's listed for you in your programs. 1 John 2.6, you'll remember that I said 1 John as the expression of how to have assurance in Christ gives us this picture that if you want to be assured of your salvation, if you want to know that you know who you know, then you want to increase in love. And when you increase in love, when you love more and more like Him, sin's not even going to be on your radar. It's going to start to fall off. And when we are perfectly like Him, the sin is gone. He's taken it. We'll stop doing it as we become more and more like Him. But I'm going to close with this thought. 1 John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Let's read that together as our final thing. 
Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you as Jesus did for hiding these truths from the wise and learned and revealing them to little children like us. Lord, there are so many who, (coughs) shoot, even including us, see themselves as wise. We have too often been guilty of amassing knowledge and yet not being transformed. You've made it clear in your word that knowledge in itself simply puffs us up. It doesn't change us. We can't make the world better by increasing our education. We can only make the world better by allowing you to transform us from the inside out. Father, remind us that if we're, if we're going to embrace the reality of who Jesus is and, and we're going to reflect that and be driven by it, that it has to come out in proclaiming the truth. How can we love people and not do all that we can to save them from destruction? But it also comes out in a heart of compassion where every Christian, as the hands and feet of your Son, expresses his compassion, works and fights for justice and mercy in every way that we can, seeking to serve, not to be served. And Father, as we cherish the presence of Christ, as we embrace the the value and the virtue and the beauty of your Son, fill us with your Spirit. Send us out as ambassadors for Christ as we make your appeal to the world, knowing what we know, Father, help us to to do all that we can to persuade others to be reconciled to you in Christ. We pray all of these things in your name, the name that is above every name, the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, for your glory alone. Amen.